We are continuing our uh, short series on the Christmas songs and the scriptures that inspired them. Today we are looking at O Little Town of Bethlehem, and the scripture that inspired it is from Micah chapter 5, and so we're going to read from there. It's on uh, page 900. And 89 in the Bible that's in the pew. You can follow along on the screen, or if you have a device that can get there quickly. I'm going to read just the first four and a half verses of Micah chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, the from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor have given birth. Then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." May God help us to understand this, his word. Phillips Brooks is the writer of what becomes eventually as O Little Town of Bethlehem. Uh, Brooks is about six foot six and uh, he's nearly 300 pounds. That isn't how he starts out, but certainly how he ends his life. He dies at 58, but between the ages of of 24 and 28 are are pretty amazing. He fills his pulpit, as you can imagine, as an Episcopal pastor at the famous church in Philadelphia called Holy Trinity Church. You can imagine, I have a, my youngest son was his age when he became the pastor of Holy Trinity at 24. He's an abolitionist. When the war breaks out, just two years into his ministry. That's the Civil War, in case you were kind of wondering. And you can imagine how hard it must have been to pastor a church during those years 1861 to 1865, where everyone knew someone, everyone loved someone who died or was so severely injured. And this is the context in which Brooks uh, pastors Holy Trinity. Literally every Sunday, almost all of the women were dressed in black because they were grieving. In 1865, Brooks becomes incredibly exhausted, as you can imagine, ministering to a church that was going through the Civil War, and particularly one in Philadelphia of such renown. 
because he was ministering to so many grieving people. By the time he was 30, Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. The war had ended and, and Lincoln had been assassinated. And so the government came to Brooks. He had become fairly famous at 30 and asked him at 30 years old to preach Abraham Lincoln's funeral, which he did. But what happened is he lost the last drops of joy he had in preaching to a nation that had lost its last drops of joy they had. And so the church in 1866 looked at him and said, we need to send you on a sabbatical. See, it's not new. They sent him at Christmas time to the Holy Land to get some rest. And, and while he was there, he wasn't getting any rest because the hotel that he was staying in was in Jerusalem. And at Christmas time, Jerusalem is a busy, busy place with many, many people. And, and so he decided to borrow a horse and ride the six miles to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. And it's on that journey that he begins to think about Matthew 2, which is the description of the birth of Christ. And, and you get to this point in Matthew 2 where he's quoting from Micah 2, I mean, Micah 5, about Bethlehem. And that's why he writes those words, O little town of Bethlehem. It's not until two years later, he's, he's refreshed, he's come back to Philadelphia, he's ministering again in Philadelphia that he says, I want, to write a, I want to write a song about the birth of Christ in Bethlehem for children, because he loved children. He was a single guy his whole life, and one of the things that he, he loved to do is minister to children, and the way he ministered to children was he wrote songs. Now, he's not musical, so he didn't write the music, he just wrote the words, and so based on what he experienced in Bethlehem two years before, he wrote the words to O Little Town of Bethlehem. He goes to his organist because he's not a musician and he says, can you in a week's time get the music ready so that we could teach the children on Christmas Eve, 1868? And the organist tried and tried and tried and couldn't do it. And so on Christmas Eve, he's taking a nap and, and he wakes up with this tune in his head which becomes little, O Little Town of Bethlehem. In fact, later on, when they finally put it in a hymnal in the 1870s, they, uh, they say the composer is Louis, St. Louis, L-O-U-I-S. They misspelled his name. His name is Louis as in L-E-W-I-S, Redner. Brooks later refuses a knighthood from Queen Victoria. He becomes quite famous. And there was a famous Episcopal church in, in Boston that burns to the ground in 1872 called Trinity Church. It's still there. It's there today. It's, but the rebuilt one that you visited, and if you've been to Boston, is the one that uh, uh, Phillips Brooks built. You see, when they called him, there was no church. And they said, could you come and be our pastor and rebuild Trinity Church? And he does that for them. He writes two books. One of them is still in use today by preachers because it's a textbook on how to preach. And he has this one phrase that I remember when I was in seminary reading. He talks about truth through personality. And what he means by that is, is that all truth is delivered through the life of the one who proclaims the truth. And that's true about preaching. You're speaking 
through your own life, things that God has done as Paul, and that's what you receive. But what he's best known for, ironically, is a little town of Bethlehem. How still we see thee lie. Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. It focuses on two biblical themes, two truths. One is simply that Jesus is the light of the world, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. And that Jesus is not just the light of the world, he's also God with us. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Emmanuel. And even though he's thinking about Matthew too, he's really referring to uh, Micah 5 because that's what Matthew is doing. And Micah is an 8th century BC prophet. He's a contemporary of Isaiah and he's writing about the coming invasion of the Assyrians into the northern kingdom of Israel. And when Assyria comes, it's ravished. It's, it, it is uh, occupied and destroyed, especially Bethlehem, King David's home. And so when he pins this idea of what good could come out of Bethlehem, such a small place, such a small group of people in one of the smallest clans of Israel. He says in verse 2, too little to be considered among the clans of Judah, And then verse 5, but a king will come from Bethlehem that will be great to the ends of the earth. Our lesson this morning is simple. God uses the weak things, the little things, to show his power. Paul puts it this way, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Advent is about the inexplicable realities of God's demonstrating his power through weak people, weak places, and weak things. And so let's, let's dive in on these two ideas of weak places and weak people by looking at Bethlehem. What's so great about Bethlehem? Even, even Phillips Brooks is using poetic license about Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, resting silently, deep and dreamless sleep. That's not what was going on in Bethlehem in in, uh, the first century. The Caesar has called for a census all over the Roman Empire. And so you were required, even if you didn't live in Bethlehem, but you were from Bethlehem, that is your family is from there. Even if you haven't been there in almost all of your life, you had to go back to Bethlehem and give your name so that you could be registered as a resident of Bethlehem. The census could be taken. So Brooks is describing the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, but he's describing them in a way of 1865, not of the year in which Jesus is born. Normally, Bethlehem would have had about 200 residents at the time of Jesus' birth. That is, after the Assyrians had destroyed Bethlehem, people didn't come back to Bethlehem. In fact, it had moved from thousands upon thousands of residents to merely a 200 by the time that Jesus was born. And so when Brooks writes, he's probably got Matthew 2, not necessarily what he 
I mean, what was happening in 1865, not what was happening in Matthew 2. The name Bethlehem, Beth, which means house in, in Hebrew, and Lahem, which means bread. And so Bethlehem is named as the house of bread. Literally, it becomes the what? The breadbasket of Judea. We know that because when Ruth, in her book, talks about going to Bethlehem, where her mother-in-law is from, uh, Naomi, uh, she goes and gleans what? In the fields, the wheat fields that they fed all of Judea on. And so it is ironic that the bread of life, what Jesus calls himself, comes from the house of bread. Micah 5 alludes to Bethlehem as a small place, at least among all the other clans. Then what is so great? And you might say, well, David is from there. It's, the, it's David's hometown. And that would be true except for verse 2 talks about someone greater than David coming. So great, verse 4 says that he's going to be great among the nations. David was only great in Israel. But he's saying someone else is going to come. And when he comes, all the nations will know this king because he'll bring peace to all the nations. One day, from this small, insignificant, broken little town, something bigger than the whole world is going to come. The Son of God is born there, and that's what makes Bethlehem so great. But why Bethlehem? If, if Bethlehem is going to be the place of the birth of Christ, why there? Why not Rome or Jerusalem or Athens? The answer is that none of those places could claim the glory that only God could get the glory when he chooses such a backwater, broken little town as Bethlehem. That is that salvation uh, comes to us because we are not deserving, not because we are. God chooses a stable so that the innkeepers could not brag. Can you imagine if Jesus had been born in a Marriott or in a Hilton, or in a Holiday Inn Express. How many signs would be out front that Jesus slept here? Kind of like Washington. He's bigger than Washington, so it'd be even worse. And so Jesus is born in, in, not in the end, so that no innkeeper can claim credit. God chose a manger so no crib maker could brag, can you imagine if, if, if Jesus had been born in one of the famous uh, crib makers of our country, how many signs he could put out? You want Jesus's crib? Buy this one. But none could brag because he was born in a manger. God chose Bethlehem so no king could brag. Jesus was born here because Bethlehem had no king. God uses a weak place, a little place, to demonstrate his power and his glory and his greatness. Do you ever feel like you're from a little place, an insignificant place, an unremarkable place? I know, I know, Annapolis is a great place. But do you realize there there are only seven state capitals smaller than this one? 
I know, I know, the Naval Academy is here and it produces so many flag officers and leaders in the, in the Navy and the Marines. I, I understand. I, I know there's an agency here that nobody can name and can't tell you what they do there and they bring the brightest to our area. Oh, so many of you are consultants on some really big projects that really will affect our world. But that's not what makes our city great. Do you know what makes our city great? Do you know? God has put his body here. It's called the church. There are many, many, many places in this world that do not have the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore they have no witness to the great God that we have, but he put us here. And not just us. There are so many great communities of churches in our area, all part of the same church of Jesus Christ that proclaims the gospel in our city. We are so blessed to have so many churches that are working on the 80% of our community that attend no church of any kind for God's glory. For the last 54 years, EP has not only been a church for people to come hear the gospel, it has planted church after church after church, started ministry after ministry after ministry, concerned about what's going on in the womb, concerned about what's going on in our schools, concerned about what's going on in the military, concerned about what's going on in our city, and has worked for justice and mercy, but mostly that people might know Jesus. It's got a rich, beautiful history, but that's not what makes it great. What makes it great is because we are the church of Jesus Christ. Are we the kind of church, have you ever thought about this? Are we the kind of church about which others in our community would say, I don't share their beliefs, but I shudder to think about what this city would be like without them. If, if EP closed its doors and stopped all of the ministries and all of the outreach and all of the neighborhoods that we have, would people miss us? I hope so. The way that we have communicated to you and other people is that EP is seeking the renewal of Annapolis as we're being renewed by the gospel. And if you thought that that was a slogan, and it is, but it's so much more than a slogan. It's the mission of God in our community. It's what, it's what Jesus says in Matthew, recorded in Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you, for lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's what Jesus said in Mark, where he says, preach the gospel. And in Luke, he says, preach the gospel to every nation, every people. In John, he'll say, just as the Father sent me, so I send you. And just so the disciples didn't miss it. And Acts, he says, you will be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. And just so we don't miss it all, 
In the Revelation, John says that when I saw the crowds, the myriads and myriads, which is a, which is a Bible way of saying it's too many to count. He says there are going to be people from every tribe, people, and tongue there, which is a, a way of saying there's going to be every kind. When you can think of a kind that hasn't been reached yet, they're still going to be there. And so that shows you our work that is left to be done. This is the way Micah puts it. Micah 5. And he shall stand. He's talking about Jesus. And shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. And until then. We're seeking the renewal of Annapolis as we're being renewed by the gospel ourselves. And that means that if we're American Christians, which most of us are here, we need to be less preoccupied as Christians with our nation's place in the world and more concerned with the advancing of the gospel among all nations, including our own. If you're from a weak place, you're in the right place. But what occupies all these places are weak people. I love how Brooks puts it. He says, God imparting to human hearts the blessings of heaven. Well, what's the blessings? Cast out sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Advent is the greatest affirmation of human dignity. Because the word became flesh. Sometimes we, we miss that because we think we're the thing. But Jesus honored us by becoming fully God, fully man at the same time. But it is also the greatest indictment of humanism. Because humanism teaches that man is not only the source of his problem, but he's also the solution to his greatest problems. But Christ came because fallen humanity cannot solve its greatest problem. It cannot save himself. And so salvation is not from within, but it comes from the outside. There's no inner light that can save us. There's no inner light to show us the way. The light has to come into the world. And therefore, the Bible cannot be just good advice for good people. It has to be good news for bad people. And I know it's uncomfortable to admit that from God's perspective, all of humanity is bad. I, I know that that doesn't mean you can't do good things, and, but from God's perspective of purity and holiness, there's not one of us who is holy and pure. And you say, well, well I don't want to admit that. Well, don't worry. I love Anne Lamott's quote about this. She says, it's okay to realize that you are broken and very damaged. It's okay. Because the best people are. If you're broken, if, you, if you're damaged, you're in good company. Because all of humanity is broken and damaged. Not one of us have gotten out of this world pure and holy on their own. 
Do you think your family is dysfunctional? Check out Jesus' family. Wait till you, till you meet Jesus' big, amazing, outrageously scandalous family. I love how God is constantly taking outsiders and bringing them on the inside by making them family. This one little town produces not just uh, Naomi and her husband and the two sons that go off uh, uh, and marry uh, Gentile women, one of them being Ruth, and comes back all broken as widows with no source of income, begging uh, for food and, and gleaning in the wheat fields of Boaz. But Boaz, by God's grace, marries her, brings her into the family of Jesus because from them come David, grandmother of David, who becomes the descendant who produces the king. David was a king. He was just a pointer to the king, but he was a king, but he wasn't the magnificent David. He was the broken David. David, David the one who, who defeated Goliath, who's been crowned and anointed as king, has an affair, and that's the easiest uh, acceptable, but it was probably far worse for Bathsheba than just seduced. And he kills her husband, hides it from his people, and ultimately is not allowed to build the house of God because of it. Loses a son. These are the residents of Bethlehem. Just two more residents of Bethlehem. One is a young carpenter who is engaged to a teenage woman who becomes pregnant and not by him. And so it becomes the scandal of Bethlehem. You can imagine as, as Mary tries to explain to her family, hey, hey, don't worry. The Holy Spirit is the Father. Can you imagine as, as she is ridiculed and embarrassed and whenever they, they wanted to embarrass Jesus, they would say, oh, isn't he the son of the carpenter? And everybody knew he wasn't Joseph's son, at least not legitimately. Can't you see God majors in taking broken people and doing great things with them. God takes the weak people and shows and demonstrates his strength through them. But you say, but I'm just an ordinary person. I may not be weak. I may not be strong. I'm just ordinary. There's no shame in being ordinary. God uses ordinary people to demonstrate that same power, that same glory, that same greatness. And you say, but, but I'm a mess. Oh, first, yes, you are. Let's finally be the church of the mess. I know on Sunday we can look so good. But most of us, before we even get out of the place, it all falls apart. We're, we're a lot like Cinderella. At midnight has come and the dress is now rags. And the chariot we got here is a pumpkin. That's who we really are. We're the collection of the misfit toys on the misfit island. We have to admit that we are the mess because our messes, this is the good news, can never outrun the grace of God that he has for us. 
And if God accepts us at all, no matter how messy your life is, he accepts us wholeheartedly and he covers us completely with the spotless robe of Jesus' righteousness. And this robe of acceptance by God does not come in gray. It comes in dazzling white only. Those of you who think you do not look good in white, that's what you'll be wearing for all eternity. When you get to heaven, he doesn't then give out the dingy, the spotted, the, the holy, W-H. He gives you his best because he gave us his son. And that the worst parts of you do not tempt God to give up on you. I don't know how many people have said to me, I've gone cross the line. I've gone as far as I can go and probably God has given up. You can't go that far. His grace goes all the way to the doors of hell if you are there. And he will not refuse to use you because you're a mess. If you feel small and and insignificant and irrelevant, if you feel that nobody has noticed you, don't feel bad. You're exactly the kind of person that God uses for his kingdom. Because when he uses you, he knows you won't take the credit. The world's going to marvel when he uses us. But not at us. But at him in us. Has Jesus Christ entered in? Is he renewing you with the gospel? If he is, welcome to the family. That's what's required to be in the family. He enters in, casts out sin and enters in. And will you be a part of seeking the renewal of Annapolis for his glory, for his greatness? If, you, if so, welcome to the team. And if you think that you don't have the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the money, the position, the marriage, the children that's required to show off to the world, you're in the perfect spot because that's who God wants to use. Because no one can claim the credit when he uses you. But him. That's why we are an incredibly beautiful, outrageously scandalous people. But we are the family of God because he has entered in and cast out sin and made us his. Let's pray. Father, thank you that I get to be part of a family of mess dysfunction, insignificant, ordinary, broken family. 
And Father, I pray that we don't put on airs, but we show who we really are and that God will still use us and give us the robes of righteousness that make us acceptable to you. Help us to brag. Help us to boast. But boast in Christ and Christ crucified. Help us to be that kind of church and partner with all the churches that want to do that too. So that we could see the reverse in our community. Instead of 20% in church, it would be the 80%. Imagine what our community will be like with more and more people who are praising your name, who have been brought into the family and are on the team. I pray for everyone at Christmas time that we're able to discern as Christ entered in and cast out sin and brought us in to the family. Are we part of making your name known and glory and boast in you and therefore are on the team. I pray that that becomes the calling of our church as it already has begun to become. And that people who are a mess in our community and dysfunctional and broken may find that they too can be brought in to the family of God and on the team. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.